the first chapter. Jeremiah 1. We shall read verses 1 through 10. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Again, a thank you to Paul for filling in for Pastor Nathan as he's he and Lauren are taking advantage of spring break for a little time away. Paul, thank you for your help this day. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign, came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. When I, then I said, Oh, Lord, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. And the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over the nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow to build and to plant. This indeed is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, may we now hear and heed this, your word. We rejoice that this inerrant and fallible word has come to us. And we pray now that we would hear it rightly. Bring us to repentance Bring us to a healthy fear of the Lord God Almighty. Bring us to the comfort of our Savior. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now, some of you likely have not read, at least recently, the responsive reading we had this morning from Deuteronomy the curses. And some of you may have thought, that's a little harsh. We don't do very well taking up the matter of the judgment of God. And if you felt a little threatened, a little dark, good may mean you're not spiritually dead. 
Last week, we began to consider the book of Jeremiah by first considering the book of Lamentations. We considered that under the title, The Hopeless, Hopeful Judgment of God. Today, we actually come to the book of Jeremiah itself. The prior message served to remind us that suffering, even suffering under the judgment of God, is still for us a call to faithfulness. Now, Jeremiah's a big book. You may have figured that out by now. While it has fewer chapters than Isaiah, it has more words. In fact, depending on the way you count it, it's one of the three longest books in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, whose name means uh, something like the Lord throws like a missile, or the Lord exalts, lived about a hundred years after Isaiah. In fact, there's even a word in the English language reflecting the nature of Jeremiah's ministry. Somewhere along the way, you've likely heard the, the word a Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a long, mournful complaint or lamentation, a list of woes. And the whole concept comes from this book of Jeremiah. Now, there had been a great king a hundred years earlier in Judah's history, Hezekiah. After him, there had been several absolutely horrendous kings. Then a great king shows up, emerges in Josiah, but he was not able to completely reform the nation. And after his death, they lurched back into sin. Josiah, truly the last of the godly kings in Judah, dies. Jeremiah's times were troubled. He became a prophet during Josiah's reign, somewhere around 640-609 B.C. His death of Josiah marked the beginning of the last years for Judah. Other prophets during this time would be Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Jeremiah's prophetic career coincides with the peak of the power of Babylon or the Chaldeans, specifically under Nebuchadnezzar. Now, most of us are aware of Nebuchadnezzar, not from the book of Jeremiah or even from the book of the Kings, but rather through the book of Daniel. It's during his reign, the first deportation of Jews takes place, 609. This was likely Daniel and his companions. He returns when Jehoiakim rebels, but then dies before he can be punished. His successor, Jehoiakim, only reigns three months before Nebuchadnezzar deposes him and replaces him with Zedekiah and takes more captives. Zedekiah tries to play the role uh, while rebelling at the same time, eventually is the cause of another siege, the sack of Jerusalem. And the final king in the lineage of David sees his world end this fashion. All of his descendants killed before his very eyes and then he is blinded. Wow. Likely this book composed somewhere around 550 B.C., somewhere along in there after the captivity had begun. 
Now, if you read Jeremiah, you're going to find out there's lots of types of literature. There's autobiography. There's long poetic discourses. That always strikes me. Jeremiah, I'm calling you to prophesy judgment on the people. And he writes poetry. We normally don't think of poetry in terms of judgment motif. There's oral sermons reported here, reports of sermons delivered in written form, historical narrative. There's messages to individuals and messages denouncing foreign nations. You'll notice the work is not chronological. In fact, the prophet's works typically are not. Think of it this way. As you look at Jeremiah, you'll not find an introduction, a body, and a conclusion per se. It's probably better to consider Jeremiah as a collection of speeches interspersed with several historical episodes in the prophet's life. These speeches or prophecies have been compiled and are chronological only in the roughest sense. Chapter 1 presents his original call to prophesy. Chapter 44, his last prophecy in Egypt. But at the same time, you cannot assume that something you read in chapter 17 happened after something in chapter 13. It's better to read through the book that you see it like a collection of speeches arranged thematically. Jeremiah is writing as something of a political refugee. Now, why would we take time? Here in the 2000s AD, to look all the way back at a book that's almost 600 years before Jesus. Well, we need to remind ourselves that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Now, the fact is, you don't hear a whole lot of sermons on lamentations. In fact, as far as personal experience, the only preacher I've heard personally do lamentations in my lifetime of ministry is me. I don't mean anything by that other than I never in a church setting heard anybody, I'm not saying didn't get done, it's just not typically picked up. Most folks' favorite verses don't come out of Lamentations. For that matter, their favorite verses typically don't come out of Jeremiah. And the danger here, we make all sorts of mistakes, I think, when we use the Old Testament wrongly. Now, the theme of the judgment of God is a reality. In fact, you cannot read the Christian scriptures without recognizing that much of it is talking about God saving his people through judgment. Those things go together. They are connected. But you see, we get in erroneous places. I'll give you one of the current errors of our day, and that is to somehow make America the spiritual equivalent of Israel. Okay, I, I want to say this clearly. I don't want to be misunderstood. That is wrong. It is wrong in terms of biblical interpretation. It is wrong on its face. I said it last week. I shall say it again. God doesn't make covenants with nations anymore. Now, here's some say, well, our founding fathers made a covenant with the Lord. No, they didn't. 
They were certainly far more Christian-informed than leaders are today. But there are no national covenants with the Lord God Almighty. Well, I guess I should take that back. There is one, the colony of heaven, the people of God from every nation, tribe, people. We are citizens of the kingdom. I know, last night you lost an hour of sleep, so my words are swimming upstream. But children, you ought to be happy that you are a citizen of the kingdom and a member of the family. So when we look back, and again, you're saying, well now, preacher, are you going to do those first ten verses? I'll actually do the exposition of those next week. But I want to set the stage again. Since we're not able to keep our promises to the Lord, what we deserve is God's judgment, right? We don't, and how many times do we, do we see this, right? People of God promising, Lord, you, you told us we're going to do it. We're on board. Yay, God. Go Yahweh. And within days, building golden calves. And worshiping them at the foot of Sinai with the manifest presence of Almighty God on the mountain. Folks, we got a problem. It is hardwired into us. When Adam and Eve chose autonomy, when they chose to defy God, that they would be as gods determining good and evil. They plunged the entire race into darkness and rebellion. What Jeremiah teaches us is that the Lord's judgment is both to destruction and salvation. Judgment to destruction, judgment to salvation. Now, I know some of you are looking at that. Okay, preacher, 52 chapters, and you took a long time getting through three chapters of Romans once. You're going to be okay. We're probably going to take some larger bites along the way. But I had to consider some themes. I think this will help you as you read Jeremiah. Some of you have told me you've already been reading Jeremiah. Um, and it takes some effort. It truly does, because it seems in some places very repetitive. And there are places it just seems dark, dark, and then it gets darker. First consideration. Jeremiah overall teaches us several things, one of which is this. The Lord calls his servants, specifically the prophet here. He does it before they're born, before I formed you, I knew you. Do you understand that's a nonsense statement unless God says it? We don't know people before they're formed. 
In fact, we really don't know them until uh, they're here and present. And even then, it's an adventure. Right? I'm, I'm always intrigued by people who think they know other folks. I just, I just start laughing. Oh, you poor benighted fool. You may know more than you did, but there's so much more to know in individuals. God says, I knew you before I formed you. God has purpose, and God executes the purpose. Jeremiah's birth was not an accident. He calls his servants when he's ready for them, and he does it in his power, and he does it for his purpose. So bear that in mind, because Jeremiah along the way is going to complain. He's going to gripe. Lord, you lied to me. You deceived me. In fact, I got sick of the whole thing. I was going to quit. I remember this verse. I said, when I will no longer speak in his name, his word became a fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary fighting it and could not. The Lord's servants often are not popular. Now, let's look at this for a moment. How about over in chapter 5? You've still got your Bible there. Chapter 5. Those of you with digital, be patient for those of us with old school. Chapter 5, start at verse 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I'm making my words in your mouth of fire, and this people wood, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I'm bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It's an enduring nation, an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They're almighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down, excuse me, shall beat down with the sword. Wow. Folks, I'm here to tell you, Jeremiah would never have had a media ministry. Ain't nobody wanting to pay for that kind of stuff. What a message. And it was personally painful for Jeremiah. If you look over in the 8th chapter, at verse 18. Yeah, Jeremiah 8, 18 Here's what he says, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. And he not only wasn't popular, he was persecuted. Now, I know, how, to th how do you think about this? Okay. Imagine yourself 
recognized as a prophet of the Lord, but you're the only one saying to a bankrupt, morally bankrupt nation, God is going to destroy you. Let's, let's contextualize. How would you feel about a fellow who got to be a national, uh, nationally known figure who came to America and said, America, God is going to bring the Soviet Union down on top of you. They're going to rebuild the Soviet Union. Russia has the power. And don't you dare resist Vladimir Putin. Lay down your arms. You're doomed. The lad likely wouldn't see the end of the day. But that's in essence what he does. He's going to say, submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Don't resist him. He's the messenger of the Lord. While everybody else is trying to figure out how do we keep Nebuchadnezzar back. And oh, by the way, we are the chosen people. God's surely not going to let that pagan king run over us. Hmm. So they place him in stocks. And they threaten him with death. And they beat uh, they beat him and imprisoned him. And at one point, they threw him down in a cistern, a dry cistern. Well, not dry. There's no water, but it's full of mud. And then they forcibly take him to Egypt. This is not a popular project to be a prophet to Judah in this day. And yet that's the calling. And my friends, I, the only parallels that I would bring are this. I've noticed that many are not happy when you preach the justice and judgment of God. Confessionally, Boulevard, we believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our culture believes in justification by death. You die, you go to heaven. That's the American way. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Lord's servants often aren't popular. Third theme you'll see in this. The Lord requires faithfulness in His people. This book is filled with condemnations of their unfaithfulness. In fact, described rather vividly as the behavior of an unfaithful spouse, indeed, of a prostitute. If you look back in the second chapter at verses 1, 2, and 3, you see what is, in essence, the beginning of a covenant lawsuit. Here's what I mean. Israel, first, the northern kingdom, has fallen by the wayside. Judah is next, due to be doomed. But in all of this, there was a covenant relationship. God had made covenant, and he said, if you obey, here's the good things that will happen. If you disobey, here are the bad things. The response of reading this morning was taken from the curses, and only a part of it. I gave you just a few verses out of a very lengthy chapter that articulates the judgment that was going to fall on the people of God if they didn't obey. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Oh, pay attention. Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of Israel. Verse 
5, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? The covenant God remembered. You look in that same second chapter, you skip down to verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? Now you see the, what he's setting up here. People make their idols, but they would not give up their idols for anything. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Look down at verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That covenant mercy had been rejected. Even if you just go over to chapter 3, just a page over, at least in my Bible. Verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him, becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. Now some of you are taken back just a little bit about the vividness of this language. But my friend, throughout Scripture there is a parallel, a concept, a parabolic idea. It shows up in the New Testament this way. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 and into chapter 6 talks about family relations. You remember how he opens this thing up? He starts with, be filled with the Spirit. Not drunk on wine, but filled with the Spirit, right? And then right after that, he'll talk about submitting to one another out of the fear of Christ. And then he'll talk to wives in their relationship to husbands, husbands in their relationship to wives. And then he puts this little statement in. And please understand the statement. He doesn't say, you know, that kind of reminds me. That's kind of, I, nobody's probably ever thought of this, but I'm really speaking of Christ and the church. No, from the beginning, the imagery. Spouse, husband, wife, covenant. This has been true since the beginning. <clears throat> and what you see in much of the Old Testament, the accusation against Israel in the north, Judah in the south is this. You have prostituted yourself. You have been unfaithful to me. The entire book of Hosea is built on that premise of an unfaithful spouse. You ponder that whole thing, poor old Hosea has to marry a woman, turns out she's not faithful. Gomer. Now, I've said before, I usually try to pronounce it Gomer because when I see Gomer, I default to something else. A misspent youth of television watching. Um, and you remember the picture? He lives this out. Names his children about faithlessness. And no mercy. The Lord, in this act of judgment through Babylon, actually executes a divorce to the unfaithful spouse. And this actually comes forward if you look at the book of Revelation. Some of you would like to study Revelation. Well, let me give you a theme to look at in Revelation. There's two major characters, metaphors. The harlot and the bride. 
And, and John in Revelation picks up on the same language and ideas of the Old Testament. The harlot is apostate Israel who has rejected their Messiah. The bride is the church. And the harlot is destined for judgment as the church is destined for salvation. My friend, the Lord requires our faithfulness. Fourth, now you're trying to keep up, some of you didn't get these. The Lord calls his servants. His servants often are unpopular. Thirdly, he requires faithfulness in his people. Fourth, he requires obedience even when it hurts. The Lord orders the people of Judah not to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. There was great fear that Nebuchadnezzar would wreak vengeance. And they mistakenly kept trying to hold on to the parts of the covenant they liked. They wanted to have all of their other gods, and this goes all the way back to the king Manasseh, who had them worshiping one of their gods, Molech, that included human sacrifice. Some of the descriptions are that the idol and altar of Molech was hollowed out brass. And inside, they'd build a raging fire that heated this laver that was in the arms of Molech, the god. And they would take their living infants and throw them on that laver as part of their, as part of their worship. By the way, that's how hell gets its name in the New Testament. Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, was where the human sacrifices were made. And Israel turned the valley of Hinnom into a garbage dump. And that became the illustration of hell. Always burning, filled with rotten and worms and wild dogs growling and gnashing their teeth at one another. They wanted to keep their pagan gods. The Lord ought to be easier to get along with. After all, a little syncretism never hurt anybody. A little of this religion, a little of that one, and everybody's lovely. Folks, can I let you on a little secret? People think the same thing today. Well, I'll take a little bit of this and a little of that and a little of that, and I make my own custom spirituality. Yay me. And the Lord finds that abominable. See, this is a scene in other prophets. I was thinking about this, and I included this. We'll not read it all. But sometime, and I'll just point this out, Habakkuk. And I know probably a dozen of you at least had your devotions out of Habakkuk this morning, right? Um, or Habakkuk. I've heard it pronounced both ways. In the first chapter, Habakkuk complains. Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you'll not hear? Or cry to you violence and you don't save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. What's his complaint? The Israelites, the Jews, they're behaving horribly. The people of God are wicked. What are you going to do about it, Lord? And then the Lord answers. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans. I'm going to summarize this. 
He calls them a bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth, who sees dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than even evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Hmm. I want to bring the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and they're going to crush the people of God because of their disobedience. And then we or with Habakkuk, right? He, he gets to the child. Lord, what? They're worse than we are. You're going to let pagans do this? They're worse than we are. Chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, look out to see what he'll say to me and what I, what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me. Here's his answer. Write the vision, make it plain on the tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. It seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Remember that, don't you? Three times in the New Testament, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans, Galatians, Hebrews. But it's in this context. What does the Lord say? Yes, they're awful. And when I'm done using them, I'll decimate them. Now, that's another theme, by the way. I don't point this out here, but I'll, I'll, I'll add it. This is free. The absolute sovereignty of God. All of these nations, even to our own day, these strutting, pompous, arrogant, unrighteous men and women who lead nations, who think they are something. Let me point this out. The Lord calls all the nations so light in His estimate, they don't even make weight on His scales. If that's what he thinks of nations, what does he think of the pompous, arrogant rulers of such nations? The Lord will use whatever means is necessary to accomplish his judgment. Two more things to consider, and I promise we shall be done. Another theme that shows up here is the absolute authority and preservation of God's word. We're given a little event in chapter 36. In that 36th chapter, Jeremiah is told by the Lord, verse 2, take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. It may be the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that they may, I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. And so uh, Jeremiah gets Baruch, the son of Neriah, and he writes on a scroll the dictation from Jeremiah of the prophecies. And he reads it. He takes it in to the city and reads it. And the leaders hear about it, and so he, they have him come into them privately, and he reads it to them. And then they think, maybe we ought to let the king know about this. So they take the scroll, and they go into the king. Verse 22 it was the ninth month, 
And the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the Lord would, excuse me, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. And look next. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Word of God, written and now it's gone. Whatever shall happen. Well, verse 27, after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Barak had wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, you've burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and frost by night. Read down at verse 32. Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to Barak the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words, the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And hear this last sentence. And many similar words were added to them. The Lord said, fine. I'll make it longer. We'll, we'll get real clear about what's coming upon you. My friend, God's word is not easily destroyed. In fact, it cannot be. Every attempt at the destruction of the Word of God has been an epic failure. I remember a dear brother told about a, a missionary, a Baptist pastor who went into a city in a, in a French-dominant, Catholic-dominant section. And he had New Testaments in French. And he Decided he's just going to take the bull by the horns. He was going to take this on head first. So he finds the priest of the parish. And he, he looks him in the eye. And he, he's got this little French New Testament in his hands. And he says, sir, the Lord has a people here. And they're going to believe the gospel. And I'm going to give them the word of God so they can. So off through the village he goes and he's handing out New Testaments. And every house he went to, the priest followed him, took him away. Took them all back to the Catholic church, handed them over to the church warden, the janitor, and said, burn them. And the church warden, rather than burning them all, opened one of them up and read them and was gloriously saved and became the first family of the first Protestant church in that village. The Lord has a way of preserving His Word, my friends. Finally, and I would have you hold on to this and think about this as we go through Jeremiah, the Lord promises full redemption and renewal. In, in chapter 32, Jeremiah is instructed to buy a field. It was to be a promise that there would be a day the people of Israel would return 70 years after the captivity. They could come back. But more importantly, in that section, 
is this wondrous 31st chapter. And it captures these elements. I want to read this and you hear. We're going to look at this in detail at some point. But hear this. Jeremiah 31, starting at 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, now hear the comparison, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Christian, I cannot emphasize this enough. You and I have been given the glorious, gracious privilege to be the Lord's through this new covenant. God, hear me now, God will never fight against His church. The major difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is that those who are actually part of the covenant people have been legally justified and inwardly changed. Do you follow that? Legally justified. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Notice it doesn't say they didn't have any iniquity. It doesn't say they won't have any sin. I will forgive and I won't remember. And I will write on their hearts. My friends, there are people, and I quote Mark Dever here, who like to present God as a formless ocean of love engulfing our every part, but the Bible nowhere presents God's love so amorphously. God has revealed himself in the book of Jeremiah and elsewhere as a personal God who is holy and who cares. We cannot demand that such a holy and loving God be so uncritical of people like us. In his love, he will not leave us as the broken, wounded, wrong-headed, self-defeating, and fallen people that we were when he found us. Did you get that? He will not leave you. He will love us effectively in Christ. I love that. Effectively in Christ. And make us better than we are. In fact, he'll ultimately make us perfect just like Christ. Friend, this is why we embrace the concept of the new covenant. This is why we embrace the whole idea of baptism only of those who have professed faith. The mark of the covenant, this baptismal act, 
It's for those who have actually consciously themselves entered the covenant. They have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has become their hope. He is their salvation. They are His. The new covenant applies. They know the Lord. They may be young or old, green, inexperienced, not know Bible doctrine, be confused on a host of issues. But if they are His, they will never fall away. And they will never be judicially judged. Christian, when bad things happen in your life and my life, this is not the judgment of God. This is the chastening of our Father. And there is purpose in what He does. I still can't get over that quote from William Googe last week where he said, there's nothing of wrath in our suffering. Christian, did you catch that? There is nothing of wrath in our suffering. Our suffering is even the outcome of God's love. How do we apply this? The Lord has promised to care for His people, the church without end. He will fulfill His saving purpose. Suffering is a certainty in a fallen world. None of us are immune. Please understand, I'm not saying God never judges. I think God still judges nations, and I know He still judges individuals. And you and I may find ourselves living, trying to live faithfully, knowing we're part of the kingdom, knowing we're the colony of heaven, knowing that our end is secure, but we may find ourselves living at a time where God punishes the nation in which we live. And there may be suffering on our part, even though it is not directed at us. We may not escape. I will say for the first time in my life, I could actually comprehend Christians being imprisoned in this country. And if something doesn't change, brothers and sisters, we may have to seal our testimony by our blood. The wicked rebellion that we witness all around us is simply staggering. But oh, hear me, my friend, hear me, hear me. The king wins. We may die for this. We still win. Should suffering humble us? You bet. You ought to bow your head when you suffer and say, Lord, help me. Help me understand. Help me learn. Help me grow. Our first prayer shouldn't be, Lord, get me out. I mean, it's okay to pray that, but what if the answer to that is no? Then maybe I need to figure out what the Lord is teaching me and humble myself under that. You see, some of you this morning are in suffering. And some of you are suffering because the Lord is getting your attention. You're not a Christian. And He is making your life miserable and hard. Praise the Lord. Because what He may well be doing is doing that for your salvation. To get your attention. 
Christians, some of you are dealing with hard things. I know that. And I think it's an absolute truism. You've either been in trouble and suffering, or you are, or you're going to be. <laughs> That's just reality, right? Do you understand that your Father does that for your good and His glory? And the day is coming when the explanation shall be given. And actually, what's more important than the explanation is that He shall appear. And that will be the transformation of us. For we shall see Him as He is. May the Lord seal this to our hearts. Father, we are certainly reminded that we are far often too worldly. We're too caught up in the things of this world. We have horrific gaps in our obedience, chasms of, of sin that we don't even recognize. And Lord, you'll use all kinds of means to help us get over those things. You will cure us. You will heal us. And the healing may be painful under our Father's hand. But that healing is true. And we shall know when it's done that we may kiss the rod that struck us. For it was done in love. And for our good. O oh Lord, let us have mercy on those who are under such judgment. Defying God, may we, the mercy not be cowardice, but to gladly and readily speak the truth in love. To do so with compassion in hopes they can be recovered from their sin and brought to salvation. May it be bold that we would not let people march blindly into hell when we could warn them. Though our warning disdain, though treated with contempt, may we live to hear you commend us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.